Good morning. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I already did this once in NDG. So we're a church, four different locations. I don't know if this, I just maybe broke the matrix by moving this thing. I don't know. I just didn't want to stand here. I wanted to stand there. So um, my name is Dwight. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. And yeah, four different locations. So uh, sometimes it falls on um, on us as preachers to live by a prayer and pray for green lights. And so got them all and here I am. So let me pray again and we'll get going. Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're for us. Thank you for this place. Thank you for the people who are here. I pray that uh, you would uh, awaken us uh, to the goodness of who you really are, that you would uh, help us understand um, our, our emotions and what role they play and uh, the goodness of them, the not so goodness of them, and that we would uh, submit and surrender them to you ultimately. So we love you and need you for everything. Amen. Hey, you remember the funny movie where the dog died? No? Oh, come on. No, okay, so that's a quote. I just thought I'd start with an awkward question. But uh, it's actually a quote from a movie. Uh, other than my oldest child, uh, who knows what movie that's from? Inside Out. Yeah, way to go, man. So in NDG, no one knew it. They're like, Old Yeller? I'm like, none of you are old enough to even know what Old Yeller is, really. Um, but do you remember who said that quote? What character? <sighs> what? No, uh, but sadness. I can't wait anymore. I just have to give you the answer. Sadness, okay? Remember the funny movie where the dog died from sadness. Sadness is played by Phyllis from The Office, uh, which makes it an okay kid movie to watch. Um, but the whole idea of the movie is that it takes place inside of a little girl, and the little girl has very complex emotions, and she moves and goes to a new school and has all these interesting things happen to her, but it's all inside of her mind and inside of her, her heart. Wherever the control panel is to people, that's where it took place. And it had these five characters, main characters, that were all emotions, right? And these emotions, these five emotions, really are derived from, well, Paul Ekman is a smart guy, right? There always has to be a smart guy that calls out the things that happen, but he's the guy that says we basically have six emotions as human beings, uh, basic emotions. There are complex ones that are beyond this, but the six are sadness, joy or happiness, fear, anger, and disgust. And those are the five characters that are aiming or vying for the control center of the little girl in that movie, right? Anger, seeing how upset he gets. He just wants to slam the button all the time. But the, the sixth emotion that Ekman brings up that wasn't in the movie is surprise. And I think we all, we've all existed in a period of joy and anger, but can you imagine existing in a period of surprise? Like, <laughs> I don't know how you do it for a long period of time. And so surprise is a basic emotion that leads you into one of the other emotions. My lungs are hurting right now from just doing that. Um, have you ever called someone, you don't need to raise your hand, have you ever called someone an emotional mess? Or have you ever been called an emotional mess. And as we watch this movie Inside Out and we begin to know more about who we are, we should all agree that yes, we are emotional messes. Because we don't just live and exist inside of one emotion. You know, okay, now I'm going to turn, like you're shifting a manual, like I'm going to shift into sadness now, right? Sadness just comes, or disgust just comes, or joy just comes. All of us, in a sense, are emotional messes. And the solution that's offered to us from Scripture and from God himself is not to suppress them. 
and say become stoics or become, um, let me give you just an emotional ethic that you can behave according to this rule by. No, not that. The solution isn't to suppress emotions, but to surrender them. To surrender them. That emotions are gifts given to us by God. We believe in a God that has no beginning and has no end. That he has always existed, always will be, and you're like, I disagree. That's fine. In one sense, all of us at one point disagreed with that statement. And we're so happy that you're here. But we believe in that God. Um, Many of us have given our lives and surrendered our lives to that God. And that God has said, these emotions I've given to you, they're, they're gifts. They're absolute gifts. And the Proverbs that we're going to look at this morning, we're in this series called Proverbs. Uh, if you have good eyesight, you can read wisdom literature. It's really an eye test for you. If you can't read that, go get your eyes checked. If you can, you're probably fine. Um, but Proverbs gives us wisdom to apply to the emotions. Okay, Wisdom to apply to the emotions that just arrived. No one invites emotions, they just show up. And so let me start with God. Let me start with God. God is a being who made emotions and who has emotions. Big, big, big books that exist as paperweights on many seminary students' desks have been written about the emotions of God. God has emotions and he made emotions. But the thing about God is that God's emotions are always perfect. How many of you have been, you don't need to raise your hand, how many of you have been angry and done something that wasn't so perfect out of your anger? Yes, all of us who didn't raise our hands, right? We all do dumb things with our emotions, and yet that's not who God is. God has emotions, and yet he acts and does what is good, right, and true always with all of them. And the clearest window that we have into the perfection of emotions is in the person of Jesus. Person of Jesus. And Jesus runs the full gamut of emotions in his earthly ministry. We believe also, and you can say, wow, these people are really out to lunch. Fine, I believe that we would have been out to lunch too about 18 years ago. Then I became a follower of Jesus, okay? Um, But we believe that, that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. Not like half God, half man, not Tony Stark and Iron Man, right? And you just tap into one or the other. It's fully God and fully man at the same time. And I'm going to look at three emotions from Jesus. The first one is that Jesus has compassion. We like, we like the Jesus that has compassion, don't we? we? We want to receive compassion, but we're so slow sometimes to give compassion to people. And compassion is like down from your guts, Like, it's way down in there that you feel this compassion deep down in your soul. Uh, The King James Version of the Bible uh, gives an interesting uh, interpretation of that. It's actually bowels, right? And as we've come to understand, bowels do different things. But the idea is that it's like way down in there that Jesus has deep compassion for people. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Mark 1, book in the New Testament, verse 41. uh, Jesus sees a leper and he has pity on on this leper, and he heals the leper. That Jesus feels deep down in his guts for this man, and then he does something about it. Compassion isn't just looking at the person saying, oh, that kind of sucks that they're in that position. I can't wait to get to lunch. Compassion is feeling that deep down and then doing something about it. When Jesus' friend, um, Lazarus, was died, 
In John 11, verse 35, it says that Jesus arrived at the tomb and that Jesus wept, that Jesus felt such deep agony because of compassion. That Jesus is not this aloof figure walking around going like this, looking to smite anyone who might diss him. Jesus was full of compassion toward people. This is how he rolled. But Jesus didn't just experience compa- or express compassion. He also expressed sorrow. How many of you have gone through a period of sorrow before? If you've gone through sorrow and you're like, God, where are you? Do you even understand what I'm going through? Yes, he does. He went through sorrow. Listen to Matthew 26, another book in the New Testament, verse 37 and 38. This is just before Jesus is going to go and die on the cross. He's in this garden, and it says, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, right? This isn't very like guy-like, right? Guys were told so often, just suppress your emotions. Like you don't say what you're feeling. Listen to what Jesus says. He said to his friends, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. Jesus was actually known as the, the man of sorrows. 700 years before Jesus came, it was predicted that Jesus would come and be this man of sorrows. Listen to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 3. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, please, as you're leaving today, grab one on your way out. Uh, We want for you to follow along. We want for you to know where things are. The Bible has, God didn't give this to us. Uh, Someone wrote this in. Um, But there's a table of contents at the beginning that shows where things are. Um, But God probably inspired that as well. Thank you, God, for table of contents. Uh, In Isaiah, which is right about the middle of the Bible, it says, he was despised and rejected by men. Here it is, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is predicting Jesus, this one who was going to come. But why? Why was he a man of sorrows? Well, listen to Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, the next verse. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why would Jesus be this man of sorrows? Because what he did on the cross was he took all of your sorrows all of your grief, all of your transgressions against God and against other people. He took all of your iniquities, all of our wounds, all of our sin onto himself. Have you ever felt like you were carrying the weight of the world? You ever felt that way? You weren't. You were carrying your stuff and it felt overwhelming. You were going through a hard time at work or with neighbors or with family, but that was not the weight of the world. Onto Jesus, the weight of all wrongdoing ever was put onto him. And all of the sorrowful feelings and the grief and everything that went on and along with that was put onto Jesus. And do you know what he did for us? He then hands us back peace. He says, I'll take all your sorrows and I'll give you peace. This is the good news that we sit under. Because Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross and he took all of our sin, our sorrow, our shame. Why? Why would he do that? 
Was it just so he could be a good example and we could talk about him and make weird paintings of him later on like this uh, or holding on to his exposed mother? Like we went to Spain and, and visited, a, um, visited the Prado Museum and it's just like, man, no one could keep their shirt up at all ever during that period of time. And little baby Jesus is always there. So um, why? Why? It's hard to turn back into this. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he go through that sorrow? And the answer is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, here it is, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The reason why Jesus entered into your sorrow and didn't go around it, but went through it. The reason why he didn't bypass all of your sin and say, man, you really suck as a human being, but instead took your suckiness onto himself on the cross was for joy. His joy and our joy. Jesus looked ahead. It said that he looked to the joy that was set ahead beyond the cross because he saw that what he was about to do was going to take people who were apart from God and be brought into relationship with him. People who were against God were going to be brought into family with him. People, as scripture says, who were sinners were going to become saints. And God wasn't about to keep them at arm's length saying, if you can just be a good religious boy and girl, I'll bring you in. He was going to bring us in in fullness because of what Jesus did. That Jesus saw what was going to happen and that brought him joy. Joy is actually relational happiness. Joy is relational happiness. And Jesus saw the relationships that you and I were going to have with one another, yes, but mainly with him. And he was glad to do it. He was glad to walk into that sorrow. And Jesus not only was looking forward to the joy, but even on the cross in a very strange way, Jesus experienced great joy in doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. Circumstances don't need to steal your joy from you. We use circumstances as a servant to find joy in him, and we'll look at that later on. But Jesus actually wants his joy in us. His joy, not our joy, his joy in us. He wants to put it into us. He wants a new operating system to take over. And not one that he's just going to update all the time like Apple, right? Or any operating system like, yay, exciting, iOS, whatever. It's like, man, I'm so tired of the updates, right? Because I know that it's like this thing is going to become obsolete sooner, right? With all the updates. But the joy that Jesus brings in his joy is one that will never expire. It will never run out. He wants his joy in us. C.S. Lewis actually says that joy can't be had apart from him. Real joy that we were made for can't be had apart from him. Listen, God cannot give us a happiness. Happiness, not flippant happiness, but deep joy. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. That house that you long for, there's no joy there. You're going to get water damage someday. Mice are going to get in. Ants are going to destroy it. It will rot. I don't care how good of plastic it is or how it's probably compostable, right? It'll be put in a hole someday. Joy is not found there. Relationship, it doesn't matter how good it is. Ultimate joy can't be found there because it can't last. 
But Jesus is alive and he's given us relationship with him and his joy. And this joy is a hundred proof type joy. It's a joy that will keep you intoxicated forever. Intoxicated in him. And there's no holding back with Jesus in his joy. When we go to the, the ocean as a family, uh, my family's from Maine, and so we go to Maine, we'll, we'll be going there this summer again, and the water in the ocean is freezing cold. And my youngest daughter, all my kids like to play, but my youngest daughter, Stella, she goes in there, and it's like you have to drag her out of there, right? And she's like basically purple. She matches her bathing suit at the end, and like her, her whole hand and body's all pruney from being in the water for so long, but she's enjoying it so much. And in a very real sense, Jesus is inviting us into the same thing. Like, come and, and immerse yourself in me and in my joy. So you have this invitation. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've tasted it at one point. You've tasted and seen that he is good and I want him more than I want anything else. But so often we turn back and we get out of the water, and we start looking for other things on the beach to do. Or maybe we go really far inland because we heard of this great restaurant up there. We're going to go feast up there. What stops us? What stops us from enjoying this joy? Well, I'll just say it's, it's us. It's us. James 1, 14 to 15. Jesus' brother is writing this, and he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, I grew up hunting with my dad. Uh, it doesn't matter what your view on hunting is to me right now. Um, but I grew up hunting with my dad, and um, part of hunting is understanding the behavior It's not of the animal. It's not just sitting in a tree being like, boy, I hope. We didn't sit in trees. We, we tracked and we stalked and we went after them to find them. But one of the things that one of the times you want to be hunting deer in the in the upper uh, part of North America is during the rut. Now that's not like a, a pothole in Quebec, right? A rut is when the bucks are looking for does, males are looking for females because something happens. You know, it's kind of like 3 a.m. on St. Catherine Street. You're just like, wow, everyone is looking very strange right now. It's like you're very focused and uh, drooling, by the way. It's not a good look for you. But deer, they're, they're looking. They're looking to mate. That's all they want to do. So if you're a hunter, deer who are very attentive, focused, are no longer focused for that week and a half. They just want the doe. It's the best time to shoot a deer. Because they're not looking for you. This is our desire. This is what our emotions are capable of doing, of taking us away from what we should be focused on and what we want to be focused on. A feeling pops up and we're like, oh yeah, that, that feeling's authentic. I'll go after that, right? And we run after that thing and we find out that there's not actually good things there. Not everything we feel is good, is it? Not everything we feel is good. We're emotionally messy people. And yet the good news for us as we look at the emotions this morning is that Jesus meets us not outside of the emotionally messy place, like, hey, when you get all done with your little drama skit, like, come on out and I'll meet you. He enters into our emotionally messy places with us. He loves us and cares for us in those places. And he makes us more like him. Like, saturated in good news. So, today, that was all introduction, right? Uh, today, 
four emotions and how to surrender them, not suppress them. So many people think of Christianity as just stop it. Just stop doing that thing. That's not it. You ever seen that Bob Newhart skit where he's a counselor and people come? If you haven't, you need to watch it later. Mad TV, I believe it is. But he's sitting at a desk and he's a counselor and a woman comes in and, and he, he says, you know, I, I just have two words for you. And he tells him his problems and he's like, you ready? He's like, gets out a pen and paper to write it down. He's like, no, it's only two words. You can remember it. He's like, okay. And he says, stop it. Stop it. He's like, okay, but then what? Stop it. You know, that's it. My whole advice. So many people think that's what Christianity is. And that's not it. We don't just, we don't suppress. We surrender. And we're transformed. And as we, we think about surrendering our, our feelings or our emotions, it's a constant stepping back from what we feel. It's a constant stepping back from what we feel. So the first emotion is, is or yeah, the first emotion is fear. How many of you have been fearful recently? Me. Okay, just me. Good. You all are strong and tough. You can all sit outside my house and protect me from all the bad people in the West Island. Okay? Fear. Fear. This isn't a, this isn't a stranger thing, scared to go to bed at night type of thing. Uh, this is a, uh, what did they do with that show, by the way? Like, so good, and they just took it in a very strange way. I'm supremely disappointed. Anyway. I, again, like hunting, it doesn't matter what you think about Stranger Things right now. Um, so anyway, uh, fear. Reverence. It means reverence, to revere. To revere. That we're not, we're not silly scared. We revere something as, wow, this is important or this has strength. There's some health to fearing, isn't there? I was in Canmore, Alberta uh, earlier this year, and I went for a run Great, you know, beautiful mountains everywhere, awesome. Sitting down, eating a meal with the people that I was with, and they said, oh, great, you went for a run? They said, did you see any bears? I said, no, no bears. Oh, like this is when all the bears start to come out, and people are taking pictures of them all out. And I said, oh, yeah, like what time? Like, oh, between 6 and 8 in the morning. I'm like, huh. Next morning, guess what I didn't do? I didn't go running because I'm like, you know what? I value uh, breakfast and my family more than a 5K in Canmore again, right? There's a healthy fear. I revere the grizzly bear as so much stronger than me. And I didn't have any bear mace either. And bear mace is really like this blinding the bear as he mauls you. Like, it's still not going to end well with you. Like, it just makes you feel good as you're dying type of thing. It's like the oxygen mask. Like, no, no, just put it on. It's like, we're all going down. I know that, but sure, I'll, may, I'll feel good about it. Hope that encourages you all to fly in the near future. But we, we must fear and revere the right things. We, we're made to fear and revere the right things. Let me go to Proverbs. We'll be in, in Proverbs the rest of the time. Uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 9, verse 10, says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, fear of the Lord there isn't like if you're scared in a closet waiting for the Lord to smote you or smite you or whatever, like, that's not what they're talking about. It's that we revere God, that we see him as holy and other and powerful and good and all that, and, and we revere him. That's what it means to fear him. And we were made to revere God and reorder and reorient our lives all around him, but often we reorder and reorient our lives all around ourselves or around other people. Let me give you a few examples. You don't need to put up your hand. Please don't, actually. Um, 
How many of you struggle with people-pleasing? How many of you struggle with people-pleasing? That, that you go out of your way uh, to make someone think better of you, or you do things you don't want to do so that you can do things that they would want you to do so that they will approve of you and accept you. How many of you live a life of, of hiding, meaning like you don't really go anywhere um, because, uh, or you don't engage because what if? The what if monster takes over and like what if I'm not accepted and what if, what if people don't want me there and what if I fall and make a fool of myself and what if I'm embarrassed and what if things don't go the way I think that they should go and whatever. And so the solution is to just hide that I, I literally hide, I stay in my house, or I stay away from people as much as I possibly can. How many of you are not vulnerable at all? Because you don't feel like you're lovable. You might come to a group like this, and I'm not saying you need to share your deepest, darkest, everything with us, but you come to a group like this, and you're like, this is nice to sit in amongst, but I would never be vulnerable with these people, ever. Because if they really knew who I was, they wouldn't love me. How many of you struggle to just want to fit in? Why do those things define so many of us? Why are those things things that we all struggle with at some level? Well, because ultimately, in those moments, we're looking to people for what only God can give. We're looking to others for something that they can't actually give to us. You see, the idea of of people-pleasing and being fearful of mankind in that way, it's a, it's a false god that so many of us find ourselves at the altar of. And it's a never-ending religion. Because even if you think you made it, where everyone is giving you awards and telling you you're the best person ever, something comes up from your past, and do you know what they do with you? They cancel you. You're done. You're all done. And then the fear of man takes over. The, now I need to work my way back up. And I'll show people I'm not really that anymore. It's a damning thing. It leaves us condemned. But the good news is that wisdom, wisdom redirects our fear. So when fear comes, wisdom says, no, no, no. It can be redirected toward things that it should be directed to. And the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, that he lived and died and rose again and is here to give us joy that good news, the gospel says and tells us that you if, you, if you have received Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are accepted and approved right now. Right now. Is this good? Yeah, it's really good. In a world where we're constantly clamoring to be accepted and approved of Jesus says right now, you're accepted and approved in the basement of St. Jack's. And the mission that you're put on now is one of maximum joy. Like a child at the sea, playing, frolicking in the joy of Jesus. This is our mission. Some of us think that Jesus is very cold, but he's not. He wants his joy to move in you. And he wants for wisdom to redirect our fear back to him. Many of us think that Jesus loves a future version of me. Jesus will love me when I go to heaven or when the new earth is created or whatever. He'll love me then. But he loves you right now. He loves you right now. Emotional, dramatic, right now. 
He loves you. The messy you. And he empowers you. And so what happens when, when fear rises, when, when fear rises, when it rises in me, when I'm in a conversation, uh, my wife, she's intimidating, right? And I'm like, man, I want my wife's approval. I want her to accept me. She is. She's 5'1", and I'm more scared of her than anyone else, right? Um, but when fear rises in us, I don't need to look to anyone for that acceptance or approval. What Tim Chester says in one of the great books that he wrote that I forget the title of, uh, is that right next to that person is this glorious God. And the glorious God has already accepted you and approved of you. And so you don't need to live for that person's acceptance and approval anymore. You get to live out of the acceptance and approval that you already have in Christ. That's good. That's so freeing for us. We get to invite other people into this. Are you tracking with me? Yes, my wife's tracking with me. Yes, all right. Because I want for this not to just remain intellectual. I want for it to go down deep into our hearts because you are going to experience fear. It's going to happen. And what do we do? We look past the fear. We look to the one who's already approved of us and that puts everything into perspective. Second emotion is anger. How many of you have been angry recently? How many of you have not come out of anger recently? Right? Anger is a judgment emotion. Not all anger is bad anger. Uh, Jesus was angry. Many times he was angry. Uh, we're told in Scripture, be angry, but don't sin. It's okay to be angry at certain things. Anger is a judgment emotion. And some people say, well, you know, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. And I'm like, you know, Jesus was actually making a judgment when he said that, right? There's like, there's a lot going on in that text. You can't just pull that text out. The anger is a judgment emotion. And what we need to judge is, is my anger or is that anger good or bad? Is it leading me toward Christ or away from him? And so we need wisdom for that. We need wisdom for our anger. So Proverbs 19, 11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. When you get angry, stop. When you sense anger, stop. Examine that. Look at it. Why am I angry? What's going on? Where did this come from? Proverbs talks about the wise man and the fool. Wise woman and the fool. Fools just react. The fool in Proverbs just reacts. I'm angry, therefore I'm going to chase down your car until I can get out of my car and tell you what I'd do if you got out of your car. That's most of Montreal, like, aggression. You know, I just watch someone fly after someone. They're like, get out of the car. Like, no, I'm not getting out of the car. Get out of the car. You get out of the car, this is going to happen. And then he's like, I'm not getting out. He's like, okay. And he walks back. It's like Canadian hostility. Um, but fools just react. They let anger rule them. But Proverbs says in Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules a spirit than he who takes a city. The one who can rule his own spirit is more powerful than the one who can oversee an entire city. We have a dog that, if you see him, he's pretty scary looking. He's beautiful, but he's a bit scary. Um, he is Boxer, Labrador, and Pitbull. We didn't know about the Pitbull. We got him. Uh, but he is a, a scary looking dog, and his bark is scary. If he barks at you, you're going to jump. I don't care how big you are, how tough you think you are. He's going to make you jump. 
Now, I could be sitting there with my dog, and I could just let him do whatever he wants, and we could not train him. We've had trouble training him uh, one time. But I could just sit back, let him bark, and have you enter the house, and let him do whatever he wants to do with you, right? He would probably not do good things. But um, his, his new thing is if he really likes you, he'll pee on you. So that'll be cool. Um, you know, if anyone breaks in our house, they're going to, like, the dog's going to lift a leg, take a leak on him, and they'll be like, I'm out of here. Like, I just don't want to mess with this dog anymore. Um, but what we do with dogs is we train them. We train them that when he barks, something happens. When he barks, we do something, and he understands, oh, I'm supposed to do this now. This is what we do with our anger, that when anger shows up, it's, it's like the little, the little beep on the collar or the whistle or the click, and it's like, oh, wait, hold on. Right? I can't go down that path. I need to examine it first. So where does your anger lead you to? When anger shows up, where does it lead you to? Where does it lead you to? Jesus desires that anger would lead you to him. That when you find anger flaring up, when you think about the Inside Out movie and the red, the, the red character is going over to slam down his angry emotion and take over everything, we stop. We say, okay, Jesus, I'm really frustrated. That's a very polite way and kind way of saying all that. But usually my prayers are really forceful, very upset, Lord, very frustrated, very angry about this. Why did this happen? What's going on now? What are you going to do with this anger? This is moments of my sanity, okay? This is not, not always happened this way. But in moments of sanity and being led by the Spirit of God, it's what do you want me to do with this anger? Because I know my anger is not enough to fix things. Instead... I actually can't think of a time that my anger made things better. My anger, I can think of times when my anger made things worse. Think of times where anger broke something. I can think of all, all kinds of bad incidents with anger. But I don't know of a time where my anger led to something good happening ultimately. And when we take our anger to Jesus, here's what he's going to do with it. He's going to lead us into patience. You're angry about that thing. Okay, I'm angry about that thing too. Now wait. Now wait. Um, there's a, a thing that we have once a month. Uh, it's a protest that we're involved in. It's against Pornhub, all kinds of stuff uh, against that. That's our patient waiting. We're angry about certain things that are taking place with people, and we, we show our anger through protest, and we show, I believe, God's anger toward those things against protest. And by the way, I don't, I'm not one to be quick to jump in and be like, yeah, God's so angry about that. I don't know everything that God's angry about. But when it's really clear in Scripture that he is angry about things, people being exploited and misused and abused and raped, like, yeah, he's angry about that stuff. And we get to be a part of that. But not by running in, guns blazing, right? And I know we're in Canada, so it's like, I don't know. I don't know what you run in blazing with. But there's, like, we don't do that. We get serious by going to the one who can actually do something about it. And we say, God, you change hearts. You change things. I'm so angry, but you're more angry about this. And one day your anger is going to do something about this. So we go to him. And he will develop patience in us. Isn't that amazing? I probably, you probably never thought, right? Oh, if you just do these bicep curls, you'll get incredible uh, calf muscles. Like, that doesn't happen. It's like by giving your anger to Jesus, you will become patient. It's like, what are you talking about? But that's what he does. 
That's what he does. This is the gym of the Lord that he works in. And then you're free. How many of you have felt enslaved by your anger? Like you can't, you can't get rid of it. It owns you. It leads you to do things. Jesus says, give it to me. Be free. You don't have to carry that anger around. You're free. So many of us are enslaved to people or situations that happen that they're not thinking about anymore. You're the one that's in prison, not them. You're free. So we bring our fear to Jesus by, by looking at the one who's, who's glorious and seeing that we're already accepted and approved. We bring our anger to Jesus and he, he takes that anger and he ultimately will work out perfect justice. The third emotion is jealousy. Proverbs 27.4 says this, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Who can stand before jealousy? Um, one of the commentators on, on this text said, envy is one of the only, or is the only one of the seven deadly sins that's no fun. Or jealousy, I don't know what I said. Uh, jealousy or envy was what supposed, I was supposed to say, is the only one of the seven deadly sins that is no fun. The others, at least you get like a second of fun. But this one actually brings destruction on yourself immediately. Jealousy causes your insides to rot away. It's you looking at the world like, um, what, what is it, Finding Nemo and uh, those, those seagulls that are constantly saying, mine, 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 mine. You just want to, where are those seagulls? But that's, that's the jealous heart is constantly saying, mine, mine. Jealousy and envy is what caused Cain to kill Abel. Jealousy and envy is what caused the enemies of Christ to put Christ to death on a cross. And envy and jealousy is what caused for um, persecution to come on to the early church. Jealousy stops at nothing. Jealousy makes anger look like the minor leagues. Because anger at least is mad at something that's wrong. Jealousy is focused on, on twisting something that's good, right, or true. So what are you jealous for? What are you jealous for? Who are you jealous of? Who are you jealous of? And what will you do because of it? What will your jealousy lead you to do? What has your jealousy in the past led you to do? It's a strong driving force. But here's what we're told. Don't, don't let it fester. Don't let jealousy fester. Don't, don't just stick it away in a closet somewhere in your kitchen, hoping it'll just you know, go away. It's like cooking eggs and then putting them in a, in a dark, humid closet, hoping that somehow they'll just fly away. Your whole house will reek and be filled with all kinds of nastiness in the very near future. That's what will happen with jealousy. Don't let it fester. Well, what do we do with it? You told me already, I can't just stop it. So what do we do with it? We, we turn from jealousy and we turn to contentment in Christ. We turn from wanting the person, the possession, the title, the thing, the whatever, and we turn to what we actually have in Christ. This isn't easy to do. 
but it can be done. This is what the Spirit wants to do in us. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he, was, he started all these churches, he was preaching, and then he got imprisoned, and he writes to the Philippians, this church in Philippi. And he's telling them, uh, hey, I, I heard that people are preaching uh, Christ, and they're preaching him out of envy, kind of like, hey, I have an opportunity to preach. Paul's in prison. I'm going to take an opportunity for this. And Paul doesn't get after them. Paul rejoices by saying, ah, yes, Christ is being preached. Christ is being preached. He was content with Christ being proclaimed, not his freedom. See, contentment with Christ beheads jealousy in our hearts. The story of Christ melts away envy. There's another verse in Philippians, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you know, maybe you've seen a, a, a Christian hockey player and he like wins the game or she wins the game with a goal and she says, oh, I want to credit God for all this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's like, good, but wrong context. Uh, I'm glad that you're proclaiming God. It's amazing, but that's not what that verse is about. It's not about your slap shot because what about the goalie? Christ did not help them you know, in all everything. So what is, what is Paul actually talking about? He's talking about contentment. I can be content with a lot or a little. I can be content in prison or free. I can be content with people liking me or people not liking me. My contentment doesn't rest. I'm not jealous of, of anyone or anything. My contentment sits in Christ. That's it. That's it. Contentment is such a powerful thing, and yet most of our prayers are not focused on contentment. We're praying for the things that we want and need, not sitting and marveling at the things that God has done. Yesterday, I went to the doctor. Um, another story, okay? Went to the doctor yesterday. I don't, we don't have a family doctor. Wasn't even asking for a family doctor. I show up at the, the walk-in clinic and tell the guy all my stuff. He's like, what was your family doctor? I'm like, I don't have one. He's like, you want me to be your family doctor? I'm like, a million percent. And I'm like, what about my wife? He's like, your wife. I'm like, my kids, don't do kids. Okay, that's okay. At least the two of us are in, right? Family doctor. I'm like, dang it, I am content. I'm not like, well, next doctor, I need this. You know, it's like, I can sit in the contentment that, that I have. And by the way, I was content before having a family doctor, right? That wasn't going to be my, my ultimate. So maybe if you go to a Lachine walking clinic, no, I'm going to get it. <laughs> but do you, do you understand what you have in Christ and what's coming? You don't need to be jealous for anything here in the world. Nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The last emotion is joy. We'll end with this. Joy. Proverbs 15, verse 15 and verse 30 says this. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. The joyful has a continual feast. And then verse 30. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. When we hear the good news, who Jesus is, what he's done, that should bring joy and refreshment to our bones. It should be that, that sound you make after having your thirst quenched, like, oh, so good. This is joy. That the happy life uh, isn't being uh, on, on vacation somewhere in the mountains or at the ocean. The happy life is sitting at the buffet feast of the Lord and feasting on him, sitting in the ocean of his joy, letting your skin get all pruney because you were made for that. Circumstances can't steal that, and the joy of the Lord is open 24-7, ready to be accessed 
we just say no to the desires that want to drive us away from it. And then we sit and we rest in the joy that Jesus brings. And here's the staggering thing about Jesus. It's, it's hard to believe these things sometimes. Jesus wants, he desires to make you happy in him all the time. Jesus desires to make you happy in him all the time. His desire isn't to make you follow a whole bunch of rules, to make sure that you're somewhere on a Sunday morning, though that's good, to religiously follow him with a risk of, of do's and don'ts. He wants to make you happy in him all the time. And we have to practice that because our hearts are continuously going away from him. Uh, I read uh, a bunch of books last summer on joy. If you want to be encouraged, read books on, on joy. And one of the books was uh, by this neuro, neuropsychotheologian, like something like that. Like He has an intense title. Um, and what he was saying was that uh, our capacity for joy seems to be unlimited. Our capacity for anger is not unlimited. You go crazy after a while. Our capacity for disgust uh, is, is not unlimited. Our capacity for all other things are not unlimited, but joy it seems to be. And he says, our joy capacities can keep growing. And you see it in little babies. I love little babies when they just start smiling, right? And they can't walk around yet. And they just have to lay there and like look at you. And you just kind of go over them. And you make a funny face and they smile. I'm addicted to that. And so like with all my kids, I'd just be like sitting there like making faces. If anyone looked through the window and saw me, they're like, that guy needs help. But uh, for, the, for the baby, they're locked in. And what happens with babies, what happens with babies is that they smile, 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 everything's good, everything's great, and then all of a sudden they become very emotionally awkward and they look away. And like, it's gone. And you're like, what did I say? You know, like, I want this a baby's approval. I, I struggle with people pleasing. Like, give me approval back again. And then the baby looks back and starts all over again. And what they said was, baby's capacity for joy tap out. Their brain can't handle it anymore. So they need to look away but they want it again, so they come back for more. And as we grow, our brains don't have to look away anymore. Our brains can look at the face of Jesus and be in awe of him and feel joy all the time. Our brains and our hearts can handle the joy of the Lord. All emotions that we feel are meant to lead us to him not create a weird cul-de-sac on the side, but all emotions are meant to be on ramps onto the highway of the joy of the Lord. So let me end this. The Spirit gifts us. The Spirit gifts us to be trainer of our emotions. Don't be victims of your emotions. You, don't, you can't predict, prescribe what emotions are going to come, but don't be a victim of them. Don't be a victim of them. Be a trainer of our emotions. Let them bring you. Let them drive you. But not to insanity. Let them drive you to Christ. And not only can he handle your dramatic side and, and our periods of uh, wonkiness, but he loves you in that moment. And he's not embarrassed to be called your God. Christ didn't die and rise to help us suppress emotions but to surrender them to him and to have them lead us to joy in him. So let me pray and then we're going to respond. Jesus, thank you 
that you came and you did what we couldn't do for ourselves. Thank you that you came not to uh, suppress our emotions, but rather to help us understand what we're supposed to do with them. And you gave us your spirit to indwell us and to lead us onto that highway of joy. And you thank you for making our brains be able to, to have the capacity to have full joy in you. Help our hearts to say no to those desires we looked at in James 1, 14 and 15. Those desires as we're playing in the sea, we hear about this thing that's happening inland, so we leave the sea to go and do that thing only to find out that that actually brought trauma, disappointment, and it wasn't as good as, as being and playing in you. Help us to be people that become trainers of our emotions, that we allow for them to, to lead us to you, and that we would be able to experience joy right now, happiness, the buffet of, of you right now. Pray for people who are here that might not know you, that you're not looking for them to, to, to do something for you, but you've already done something for them. That you came, Jesus, and you died for them, for their sorrows, for their sin, for their rebellion. And you rose again, having conquered sin and Satan and death and hell, and you are alive. And you want to give that to them today. So would, would they take it? Would they receive the forgiveness and the entrance into your kingdom? Jesus, help us to respond to you. We're, we're often tired. We let our emotions drive us all kinds of places. Help us to have them drive. Help them to drive us to you. We love you. Amen.